Welcome back to What Happens Next. This is our last look at the gig economy, but it's unlikely to be the last time we find ourselves part of it. That's why we've gathered all the best tips and advice from our featured experts to help us as individuals make change. Hi, my name's Greg Bamber. I'm a professor in the Department of Management, Monash Business School, and I'm also the director of an international consortium for research on employment and work, which is part of the Centre for Global Business in the Monash Business School. And I work with employers, workers, unions that represent them, governments, international agencies like the International Labour Organization, doing research and providing advice and education in aspects of work and employment as well as the gig economy. Professor Greg Bamber, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Do you ever use the gig economy? I use it much less than many other people do. I frankly don't use food delivery operations. I find it just as quick and probably more nutritious to to cook for myself when I need to do so. Uh, I don't use uh, Uber, uh, frankly speaking. Uh, I rather have a, a, a ride that might be just a little bit more expensive, but I know that the driver has at least had some uh, training or development, ideally. Um, in, in London, the taxi drivers, for example, mm. in London where I come from, they all know the geography. I've heard horror stories of other people trying to use um, ride-sharing drivers in London and the driver gets hopelessly lost. They don't know where they're going. They're wasting a lot of time uh, running up the bill. It's not necessarily less expensive when you factor in that the ride-sharing driver is not as well-trained or developed as the conventional uh, taxi driver, for example. That's in London. In, In other contexts, it may be that the taxi drivers are not as good as they should be and they've left more opportunity for ride-sharing competitors to come into the market. What advice would you give then to a consumer for ethically engaging with the gig economy? The consumer first and then I'll ask you about the worker. What advice might the consumer follow when engaging in the gig economy? read the small print and read the conditions, which is very difficult to do because if you're placing an order for food or some goods, you're presented with long screeds of conditions to read and you can't physically read all that stuff before you're timed out of your order. (laughs) So it's a real conundrum. But be aware of the conditions that you're uh, signing away when you say, I accept You may be signing away your rights to any redress or the provider may want you to think you're signing away your rights. In fact, you may not be signing away your rights because you're not permitted to sign away all of your rights. But the gig provider may say, look, you've signed your rights away and you can, if you've got advice from a legal advice centre, they may advise you, look, you haven't signed away your rights. You may still have some rights under consumer protection law or under the conditions that your credit or debit card company uh, provide. What about if you are a worker? 
working in the gig economy, what advice would you give? If you're a worker working in the gig economy, I would say join a union, which can provide you better advice than I can because the union is a specialist in your sector, whether it's in food delivery or retail stores or ride sharing. Uh, the union has had experience of providing advice to people like yourself. And then if you are working with your colleagues in a collective organisation, you've got an opportunity of having some collective voice in relation to the employer, which you don't have as an individual, where there's a huge power imbalance between you as one individual on a bicycle uh, compared with a multinational enterprise that has set up this particular food delivery or ride-sharing enterprise. Should we be worried about the future of the gig economy? We should welcome some aspects of the gig economy. We should also be worried about other aspects of it. The fact that much of it's operating uh, under the radar of the regulators or the uh, tax authorities, we should be trying to be ethical consumers and making sure that we're consuming from providers who do pay their fair share of tax, which supports the economy in which we live, that provides opportunities for education, health, public transport and so on to our broader economy. So, yes, we should be worried and trying to take action to address our concerns. Professor Greg Bamba, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Alexander, I'm a senior lecturer at Monash University in the Architectures Department and I'm also an architectural practitioner. I run my own architecture practice called Alexander Sheridan Architecture. Jackie Alexander, it is lovely to see you today. It's lovely to see you too, Susan. Do you have any practical tips for people who might want to uh, use or work in the share economy? What are um, good or ethical ways that they could do that? That's a very good question and it's something that I've been sort of grappling with a lot. I came across um, a really interesting book by um, a political economist and theorist uh, whose names are Kostakis and Barwin and they wrote a book which basically argues that the sharing economy is a really opaque term. And what occurs within the sharing economy could be broken down into kind of four different categories. And they basically say that companies like Airbnb and Uber um, are sort of inherently exploitative. They rely on an exploitative sort of labour market. They're super centralised in terms of the control of their platform. So they keep all of the IT and that sort of thing. Um, and you have to play by their rules if you want to work for them, if you want to engage with their services, it's very controlled, and it's also very profit-oriented. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you've got things like Wikipedia um, and even non-digital um, share, sharing-type practices like permaculture or carpooling and that sort of thing that is inherently more peer-to-peer the kind of, it's much more common space rather than 
sort of looking for profit, so it's more about social good. Um, it's much more distributed um, as a model, so the control and the benefits are more distributed among the community. And I think this sort of um, these sorts of categories or categories that they start to draw out of their research is really useful because it really shows us um, that there's a lot going on in the sharing economy and the constitution of the particular company, the way that it's managed, the sort of emphasis on profit or social good um, really helps us to understand what we're engaging with. And I think the more that we can sort of work towards more peer-to-peer, more genuine sharing-based networks that are local, uh, where the money stays within the community, um, and where we can sort of be inventive and creative with the ways that we're engaging. That's sort of the best uh, platforms that exist. And some practical examples of that is now in Europe, um, there's been a sort of disruptor of the disruptors called Fair BNB. So this is a new platform that's emerged where it's locally run. Um, cities like Bologna are trialling it because of so set up with sort of uh, the commodification of their city that they've started a platform called Airbnb where 50% of profits go back into community projects. Um, it's all locally run, the fees are not exorbitant and it's really about fostering genuine shared activities. So I think we're starting to see almost like a version 2.0 emerging, which isn't the wild west of um, unregulated sort of global, you know, the 1% digest, these massive disruptors. Um, and hopefully we can work towards a moment in time where there's a more sophisticated, um, distributed approach to the sharing economy. Because I think that there are some really great things that can come out of it. If people wanted to know more about the sharing economy, the gig economy, where would you recommend they go to get more reliable information? That's a good question. Um, well, there are many great articles. and I guess uh, one that I mentioned before was Kostakis and Barwin's, um sort of have done a, an independent publication which can be downloaded. It's quite it's a bit high level and it's from a sort of economic position. So, uh, and I'm not an economist by any means, but I found it really fascinating and really good at orienting um, me to the sort of ethical dimensions of the sharing economy. So that's a great one. Um, but there's also, if anyone's interested in architecture in the sharing economy, um, I have been also really interested in the work of um, a sort of research-based practice or laboratory that's in uh, Britain called um, Open Systems Lab. And the architect the practice that sort of exists alongside it is called Double Zero. And they've been doing some really innovative work um, looking at ways that we can in- similarly learn from the sharing economy and develop much more sort of free uh, free platforms under civic dominance that are about social good. So following on from our earlier discussion, Susan, about, you know, not-for-profit models and 
and ways that we can engage with the sharing economy in an ethical way. They do some fascinating work and they've been producing designs for houses that you can download and, and build with CNC routers or, you know, sort of print out parts of and thinking really in a creative way about um, free IT and shared IT and, and producing things together that result in, in better built outcomes which is really interesting. Jackie Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Susan. Hey, I'm Nathaniel Jiang. I'm an educator and designer at Heart and the CEO at Future Minds Network. And so we've actually been able to work with 11,000 youth to unlock their endless creativity through startups whilst practicing skills for future employment. Nathaniel Dion, welcome. Thanks for having me, Susan. We're lying at home, catatonic after a long day at work. Uh, It's a Thursday night. No one in the family has any capacity to make a meal. And we're like, let's just get something on, you know, one of the delivery services. But, you know, I don't know if the average consumer realises that the Uber delivery person, when they pick up the meal, they get two dollars. Mm. They get a dollar fifty per k that they drive, and then they get two dollars fifty when they deliver. That's it. Mm. But I know myself. I've been there. Been times I've been lying at home, like I can't move. Someone bring us food. <laughs> what can a consumer do in that situation? Is it better not to use the app? But then no, like people like my friends that I was telling you about earlier who were international students during the pandemic, this was literally the only work they could get. Mm. Am I helping them by not ordering from them and then they don't even get that $5? Should we order and then just give them a really big tip? Or should we not use them at all? Yeah, it's a it's a moral dilemma and I'm not sure if I can answer this one because, you know, I think the big positive of the gig economy is it provides work but the other question is at what cost and so you have an influx of work and jobs and experience but at the same time you have people being exploited and so like is it worth it to you know help keep funding those jobs Mm -hmm. if they're going to be exploited or is it worth it like not doing anything at all and then not having any revenue stream or jobs right so it's like how can you answer that question? And yeah. even with the experience that they get from it, I mean, how useful is it if you've been delivering on your scooter for Uber? Mm. How useful is that in getting you any other job? Uber's not going to give you a reference. Then mm. you're not going to be able to put Uber as like call whoever runs Uber. They'll tell you what a great delivery guy was. Yeah. So does it give us enough useful experience that we can then take into another Perhaps yeah. more secure profession. I think that that's the other complexity um, of employment and particularly the gig economy. Because what we're seeing, um, and I'm actually sort of in the process of writing a paper around it called Education 5.0, is we have you know a lack of skills, mm. we have a lack of jobs, we have a lack of mindset, um, and those two are like the three pillars. Because even when we do have enough skills, you see case studies like Tanzania, where the government um, introduced a whole scheme where they upskilled all of the youth. And then they had a moment of, we actually don't have any jobs for you. Right. And that's actually happening around the world. This, the growing number of cultural elite yeah. without 
elite positions to step into. Yeah. And that creates a lot of frustration. Yeah. And so, you know, we've just had what research by Victoria University, which said a hundred and I think a hundred thousand jobs were lost by young Aussies in 2020. And in 2021, we're going to have 120,000 fresh graduates looking for more jobs. Mm. And so we have a deficit of 220,000 young people looking for employment. Mm. And so, you know, it's interesting. And I think the gig economy is a space to watch just purely because of the work it can give. Mm -hmm. But to how much it is effective, it's really hard to say. Because, you know, you have the work, but how much do they actually practice the skills and human skills that you'll need for future employment? Mm. How much further are they looking into your journey? And then beyond that, how are they creating more job opportunities for you in the future? Would you use the gig economy at all? Do you ever use Airtasker or get food delivered on Uber? I don't use um, the gig economy in that sense much. Um, I tend to sort of make meals at home, starting to love cooking. Um, But I think in terms of the other industries that I'm in in the gig economy, such as, you know, in consulting at YLab at the Foundation of Young Australians, um, definitely. I think for me, I have a large portion of my career and lived experience to thank for the gig economy because it's helped me do things like lead international comms strategy for 25,000 humans at events like TEDx. But at the same time, it comes back to where are all these jobs coming from? Because you have a bunch of really good jobs which give you that on-the-job experience, but to get there, you have to have more experience. And so it's like that dilemma where, you know, you have entry-level jobs now that ask fresh graduates to have five years of industry experience and a master's degree. And it's ridiculous. Or it's like, um, you know, being a kid and wanting to get work experience and they're like, oh, you have to have work experience to get experience. <laughs> like, right. how do you start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what tips or advice would you give for the average person at home that wants to do the right thing when it mm. comes to the gig economy, whether themselves participating in it perhaps as a worker or as a user, what, what is the right thing to do or how could we make it better? Mm. I think from a, from a user perspective, if you're going to the gig economy and, and seeking gig work, um, there's sort of like three things. Um, the first is like really knowing your rights um, and knowing what is like a reasonable expectation for your employer to treat you as. The second thing is being clear about your own expectations and how you fit into that role. Like what sort of... I guess, qualifications or experience you have um, and what qualification experience do you want to gain from that opportunity? So how can you grow from that? And I think the third thing is consulting young people and having honest conversations with your employer Mm -hmm. about where this is all going to go. Because I think particularly because it's such a gray area, you just need to communicate more because there's no current standard of practice or social contract that we discussed before that's really working right now. Mm. And so if you want to participate, those are three things that you should really keep in mind. What about if yours, that's if you want to work in the area. In, in what if you're a user? If you're a user, I you think- You want to post an ad on Airtasker yeah. or you want a meal delivered or you want to get in an Uber and go somewhere. Mm. I think being conscious of the effects that we discussed and the impacts of that. Um, and like, like again, like I, I can't almost give you the answer to the moral dilemma that we discussed before, um, but being really conscious about what each of these things do and not um, sort of trying to exploit the system, knowing that, you know, if I post a job, that's the only job they're going to get. Therefore, I'm going to price it really low. Mm. But actually being reasonable and realizing that for each task that you put out, there's a person behind that task who might be living on that wage Mm. or might be living on that task that you're giving. So being really conscious of the world around you. Mm. Do you think, 
are we are we too negative about the gig economy? Like I think for many of us, when we had our first jobs as teenagers, they were disgusting and low paid and mind-numbingly boring. Um, and you always came home stinking of whatever food you had to make yeah. in you, the fast food joint or the movie theater or the factory or wherever we worked. And is it just kind of also just the necessary grunt work that you need to do as a young person before you get to a more high paying white collar? Mm. I would say, I would say we're reasonably concerned about the gig economy because a lot of the times when we talk about negative impacts, we like to sweep them under the table. And I think it's important for us to start at least talking about the legal frameworks that protect young workers. Otherwise, like, I mean, the positives of the gig economy are pretty endless in terms of whether we like it or not, the gig economy is here to stay. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we should try to eradicate, but rather look at, you know, how our systems currently working and how might we improve them and make them better rather than trying to er eradicate them altogether. Because like we said, like it provides that job. It provides those experiences. Sometimes it provides those skills. Mm -hmm. um, but working through the system and understanding how it works currently, and for example, putting more effort um, and working with large corporates to look at how might we build skills in the long term. I know you want to do short-term work, but how does this fit into the overall economy? Because at the end of the day, each of the workers that go through the gig economy are going to come back out and come back in again. And so if you're not investing in the future, we're backpedaling everywhere that we go. Mm. What role do you think entrepreneurship or startups can play in making the gig economy better? Oh, such a good question. Okay. Um, <laughs> when we talk about startups and entrepreneurship, right? Um, LaunchFic just released a report where um, the startup ecosystem is set to build another and create another 11,000 jobs in the next few years. And so particularly in the gig economy, we're seeing more startups come up needing help. Um, and that's because I think in the current climate, um, you know, people are wrestling between should I work for another business or should I build my own? And so I think particularly in the system, um, something that's really important is being aware that these things are happening and startups are rapidly growing right now. We have, I can't even count how many Aussie unicorns we have right now, um, but unicorns are basically startups worth over 1 billion. So things like Canva, CultureAmp, Zooks. Um, and so Australia and Melbourne and Sydney are now becoming almost like the next Silicon Valley. Um, so it's a very interesting dynamic where a lot of business is happening and so there's huge influx and potential for more jobs that are going to be fueled through this gig economy. Nathaniel, thank you so much. No worries. <laughs>
what advice would you give them for how to engage in that fairly, ethically, or would you tell them not to do it? Well, um, I think uh, you, you can make, a, a, you know, general statements or be ethical or moral about what you're doing. Now, what does that mean? Mm. It means different things to different people. <laughs> and often, you know, when they make the decision, oh, I'll do it once, you know, I won't worry about it. You know, I'll only do it once, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, you could say that, look, it would be better for your own health if you were to cook your own food rather than, you know, order on, through Uber and things like that. But... It's becoming so pervasive, the whole thing, you know. Um, people say, oh, well, just order an Uber meal, sit in front of Netflix, and that's it, you know. Spend my time. <laughs> I mean, and those activities are making you unhealthy. You know, you're not moving, you're just consuming and sitting in front of the screen all the time or playing computer games. Um I think this is a public health thing. Mm -hmm. Now, we've come through a pandemic listening to the public health advice. I think this is the next challenge for public health. Um, whether uh, governments are prepared to confront uh, those mega companies, tech companies, uh, on this sort of things or not, um, it's yet to be seen, but... I think the public, uh, you know, they have to be a, um, a sort of informed about what is happening and how this is affecting their lives and will affect their lives in the long term. But the thing is, it's like climate change. It's very difficult to tell people, you know, what the effect is if the effect is slow and long term. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't tell somebody who's 20 years old, look, uh, when you're 65, 70, you won't be able to move much if you're on the current trajectory in terms of your consumption and your activities. You know? mm. What about um, if anyone was listening who was either already working or was thinking about working in the gig economy? What advice would you give the worker? Okay, well, uh, first of all, if you've got specialised skills, then... And you could market those skills, well, go and work in it, but make sure your interests are protected and um, you, uh, you know, uh, be disciplined so the work-life balance is maintained. If you are in the physical gig economy where everything is quite routine. There is no development of additional skills and things like that. You're just delivering things. Think about it as just a temporary job to get you through the next phase in your life. And the next phase should always be to try and get some permanent sort of work which will give you um, income for, you know, the longer term. Uh, it, it's... You, it's all right to change jobs, but change from one good job to another good job. Don't get stuck into the gig economy um, in, um, 
undertake training, good training, not the macro credentials, which will give you long-term uh, uh, secure jobs. So, you know, if you don't want to go to universities, and that's fine, but do a trade or something which will give you a longer-term uh, uh, prospects in terms of jobs, you know, and skills. I imagine it, in some ways it would be very easy for gig workers to get stuck in the gig economy because you need to work a lot of hours to make enough money. And the problem with the modern gig economy is there is no training on the job and when you want to leave, Uber's not giving you a reference. Hmm. So it would be very hard to take uh, from the, your work in the gig economy and then use it as a springboard to get to the next hmm. job. So it must be easy to get stuck. I think uh, um, it, 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 there are two groups of people who get stuck. Uh, well, uh, two groups of people. The one who gets stuck are often the most vulnerable people who do not have the normal social security uh, protection. So they are the temporary workers, the international students, uh, and the backpackers and those people. You know, backpackers can obviously go back to their own country, but uh, temporary workers and, and um, workers on temporary visas and things like that who do not have the uh, social protection and they don't have access to education and training. Um, and because of their financial vulnerability, often they get caught in that cycle. Now, you know, we saw during the pandemic what happened with temporary workers and who could not get job seeker and job keeper and they started working in, continued working in the gig economy and even when they were sick and, you know, the rest is history of what happened. Um, and this was a thing the unions alerted the government right in the beginning. A lot of other people did, and yet they were excluded from those social uh, benefits, you know. Um, but in terms of uh, people, you know, the uh, permanent residents here and the citizens here, um, I think... Uh, you always had to think about how you get out of the gig economy, not how you go into it. Mm. You know, think about you know it as being a stepping stone. Only what it was originally designed for—a bit of pocket money. Think of it only in that way, because they're, they're not you know sort of promotions or things. They don't promote you to a general manager of Uber or anything like that. If you work 40 years as a delivery driver, you know. <laughs> Professor Chandra Shah, this has been very enlightening. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode and for this topic. We'll be back next time with a whole new topic to explore. I'll catch you then on What Happens Next. <laughs>